Morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, is it, can we say it's starting to feel a little bit like fall? People that are from like Colorado or some other place where there's four seasons, you guys are like, y'all are pathetic. It's like 80 degrees at 8 a.m. That's fall, everybody, in the Valley of the Sun. That's how it is. All right, so uh, like Pastor Scott said, Treat Street coming up next month. Guys, this is the biggest outreach event that we do. We're expecting, expecting upwards of 3,000 people here on our campus. So please, please prayerfully consider how you can participate with us in that. More information on the back of that uh, seat there. You can hit that QR code or go to illuminatecommunity.com as well. So today we're in Genesis chapter 38. Last week we were introduced to this young man by the name of Joseph. The majority of the book of Genesis moving forward is devoted to his life. But chapter 38 is a little bit of a pause. It's a parenthesis because we focus on one of his older brothers. He had 12 brothers in total. Uh, when Joseph was just 17 years old, God speaks to him in a dream. By the way, you're never too young to hear the voice of God in your life. It's pretty cool because as you read through the Old Testament, you find these stories about, well, like there's this, this young boy named Samuel, and God literally speaks to him and calls him, gives, gives him his destiny when he's just a kid. There's a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. God speaks to him when he's about 18 years old, and he throws back this excuse. He's like, God, I'm too young. I'm only 18 years old. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand. You have no idea what you are capable of achieving when you put your life in my hands. Now, the primary way in which God speaks to us today is through his word. So let me just say, if you're here and you are younger, listen, pay attention to the voice of God in your life. Because as you follow that voice, you will spare yourself a lot of unnecessary heartache as well. And many of us can give witness to that. As maybe it took us a while to become followers and we suffered the pain, the heartache of our own misguided ways. So in this, Joseph is an example. So we left him in chapter 37. He's actually on his way to Egypt in chains. He was sold as a slave. We talked about how that wasn't at all how he started his day. His father showed favoritism toward Joseph, so much so that he gave him this special coat that signified his place of prestige and privilege in the family. Even though he was one of the younger ones, the second youngest, it's as if his dad said, I'm going to treat you as if you were the firstborn. So if you're an older brother, you're like, no, I'm not having it. Additionally, Joseph has these dreams wherein his family members bow down to him. And the kid is young enough, he's naive enough to tell his brothers this dream. And as a result, they want him dead. They beat him up, strip him of the robe, throw him into the pit, and then they sell him to some traders that are on their way to Egypt. We pick up his story in the next chapter, but then in chapter 38, like I said, there's this parenthesis because it moves from the life of Joseph and it focuses on the fourth oldest brother. His name is Judah. Now, I want to forewarn you. This chapter is another sordid one. It's filled with brokenness and pain 
an extreme family dysfunction. It's like there's nothing new. If you've been reading the Bible for the first time with us and you've been beginning in the beginning of Genesis, you realize that it's like every single week, it's just, you're like, how much more pain can there be? Well, there's more pain in in chapter 38. In fact, we're going to read a line. I guarantee you did not expect to read when you woke up this morning and thought, I'm going to go to church. We're going to read a line. And as soon as we read it, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. In this story, there's, there are twists and turns. There's this crazy plot twist that happens. And through it all, you see the hand of God sovereignly working through human evil, through human suffering. One of the grand themes of the book of Genesis is that God works his will in his way to promote his fame for the good of his people. In fact, later in Joseph's life, even though he's in handcuffs, he's been beat down by his own family members, rejected, years later he will say, what my own family intended for harm and evil toward me, God actually flipped the script and he turned it into something amazing, not only for my good, but for the good of those around me. So here we are in, in this parenthetical little uh, chapter, and the setup to this is, starts with marriage. Because essentially what happens is the boys have a grandfather named Abraham. He's the patriarch of the faith. And he told his son, when you get married, Don't intermingle with Canaanite women. And the reason why he said this is because the Canaanites were polytheistic. They worshiped many, many gods. And so grandpa knew that if the boys start intermingling with these Canaanite women, there's a good possibility that their hearts are going to be turned away from the Hebrew God. You know, it's really interesting. There's this man that we read about later. His name's Solomon. Becomes king, king of the nation of Israel, King Solomon. He's reported to be one of the wisest men who's ever lived. If you read through the book of Proverbs, a lot of the stuff that's there came from the wisdom of this man's mind. But you know what's crazy? Toward the end of his life, he didn't finish well. In fact, the text text actually says that he married many foreign wives, that is, women who practiced the polytheistic religion, and they turned his heart away from God, and then the guy dies. Super wise. But in the end, he seems to forfeit everything that he had done before. So grandpa says, boys, don't go to the Canaanite mixers with the women. Don't go to Canaanite happy hour. Stay away from CanaaniteGirls.com. Just don't have anything to do with these girls, you know? Just like keep your distance, okay? Because the temptation... To leave your God is very real. In fact, here's what uh, Grandpa says, even to his own son, as he's speaking to one of his servants who's going to find a wife for his son, Genesis chapter 24. As he, Abraham, spoke to one of his servants whom he told, go find a wife for for my son. Then he says, I'm going to make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So, This guy Judah, again, one of Joseph's older brothers, he knows full well what's required. 
Unfortunately, chapter 38 and verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah, and remember this next phrase, went down from his brothers and turned aside. Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. Remember that, that phrase. I'm going to come back to it in a second. He went to a certain Adulamite. This seems to be the name of, of a city where uh, this, uh, this particular man lives, whose name was Hira. So there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite uh, whose name was Shua. He took her went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And she called his name, this isn't terribly creative, Ur. <laughs> Ur. Now, the language here is really abrupt. It's not at all romantic or intimate. He saw and he took. This is lust rather than love. He ends up marrying this woman and they end up having several children together. Now, the phrase I mentioned earlier, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. Jewish commentators take that to mean he literally turned his back on his tribe and on his family. He did what grandpa asked the boys not to do. He pursued a Canaanite woman. Now, uh, what's interesting is, is how the rest of this story unfolds. Verse 4 so this woman conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Now Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. By the way, you can visit this ancient city or the ruins of it to this day. It's not far from uh, the Dead Sea. So this, this, this kid Ur, he's half Hebrew, and he's half Canaanite. His father, Judah, finds him a Canaanite wife in verse 6. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, he's a really bad guy. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. You're kind of like, wow, we don't really read of God doing that kind of thing to an individual, which tells you that this guy must have been particularly evil. I have a sense it might have something to do with Canaanite religion. So when the Hebrews, when the nation of Israel the, enter into the land of Canaan, they don't just find shepherds, they find farmers. And they're surprised by this. The land is literally referred to as flowing with milk and honey. That would be goat's milk. So in order for there to be goat's milk flowing, that means that the land has to have the kind of environment that produces the grass to continuously feed these goats so that they're always producing milk. This describes a really rich soil. Not only that, but it has the kind of plant life where bees can collect pollen and, and, and do their nectar thing, that whole thing, and make honey. So you've got that, the, the kind of animals that it takes to be prosperous. You've got the plant life that it takes. This is just, this is a land flowing with milk. This is prime property. Because the land is so rich, interestingly, one of the foremost and premier Canaanite gods was this god by the name of Baal. And he was the god of fertility. He was the God who was responsible for sending the rain and the sunshine. And so because the land was, was, was fertile, this, this God Baal was constantly, constantly receiving sacrifice. So what happens when all of a sudden there's a drought? Well, what that means is that Baal is not happy. So 
more sacrifices required. And so the Canaanites would actually go to great lengths to appease Baal in difficult times by sacrificing their own children. So you understand why grandpa would say to the boys, don't mix it up with the Canaanites because these people are particularly wicked in their worship. Now, perhaps Ur got caught up in this. We don't know the details, but whatever happens, it's pretty bad, and God takes his life. Now, this presents a problem for Judah, his father, because Ur is the firstborn, and that's the firstborn. That's where the family line comes from. So it's really important that this line remain intact. So now with Ur out of the picture, Tamar is there. She's, she's a widow now. So what Judah does is he appeals to Mesopotamian law, which signified that the next oldest brother would step up and do the honorable thing, and that is be a surrogate father for the oldest brother. He would take Tamar as his wife. They would have a child. That firstborn son then would be a direct descendant and would carry on the family name as the firstborn. This is the same law that uh, when Jesus is on the scene, the religious leaders try to trap him with a question regarding this law. In Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees say, hey, hey Jesus, suppose this happens. Question for you. Uh, let's say there's this woman, and she's married to this brother, and then he dies, and then the next brother steps up and marries her in the role of the surrogate, but then he dies, and then the next one, and there's seven brothers. Hey, when everybody dies and everybody's in heaven, Whose husband will be hers? And Jesus says, wrong question. In heaven, there is no marriage. So they appeal to this Mesopotamian law. Well, that's exactly what Judah does. So next son up. Well, second born is Onan. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So this was actually considered a very virtuous and honorable act. It was considered a, an act of sacrifice on the part of the next oldest brother because essentially that brother is going to have nothing to do with this firstborn son. This firstborn son is going to take the preeminent place in the family. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So here's what he does. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. I told you. <laughs> and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And God takes his life. So you're like, wow, God, you're, you're really on a tear here. Oh, man, what's the deal? Well, what Onan did was an extreme act of betrayal. Essentially what he's saying is, I don't care about my family, I don't care about my family line. He knows that the son that he has with Tamar, that's the kid that's gonna have the place of privilege in the family. And Onan says, nope, not gonna have any part of it. And it would be considered actually uh, in its time an extreme act of hatred, not only for his brother, but for the family name. And God takes his life for it. So 
now if you're uh, Judah, you, you've got a problem because his daughter-in-law Tamar, uh, she's kind of a widow maker. Two of his three sons have died in close proximity to her. He has a younger son, Shelah. He's not quite old enough to uh, be married. And uh, deep down inside, he's thinking, why would I have him be the next man up when my two other sons have already died? So he schemes, and he tells Tamar this, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die. He doesn't want his youngest son to die. He's going to have no more sons left, like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now Judah has absolutely no intention of giving his youngest son to Tamar. He simply wants to keep Tamar in his sights and on the sideline. Now, what we, the reader, knows that... Uh, the players here, uh, Judah and Tamar, they couldn't possibly know at the time, but what we, the reader, now know is that God will work through this mess in an extraordinary way because there, uh, there is, uh, there's an event that takes place. It's, it's, uh, it's jarring, and it's, it's incredibly dysfunctional. And yet, through this event, Tamar will actually have a special place of privilege in the line of Jesus. She doesn't realize it at the time, but God will work through the most dysfunctional situation imaginable to bring about his good purposes. Tamar is about to become one of the key players in God's redemptive program for humanity. Because from the line of Tamar, Jesus will be born. Now understand that when Jesus arrived in the first century AD, the world was fractured, broken, and extremely divided. Sound familiar? What's, what's more interesting is that Jesus' own family was divided, fractured, and had its own uh, dysfunction. So Tamar realizes that she's been put on the shelf. And she's in a really vulnerable and desperate situation. Years have passed. The young man, Shayla, has grown up but there's no movement toward her own personal redemption. She's still childless and a widow. So verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, remember this is Tamar's father, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, but she had not been given to him in marriage. So years have gone by. Judah said, next boy up is gonna be the one that gives you some safety and security. Tamar, 
and there's no movement. And Tamar realizes Judah has defrauded her. It's never going to happen. Now again, she's in a super vulnerable situation. And I don't know if you've ever been in one, that's a dumb thing to say. You have been in a situation like this before where it seems really, really desperate. And it's difficult to see uh, uh, that there's a way out. And so human nature is such that we want to take matters into our own hands. We've seen this essentially in every single chapter in the book of Genesis. Like these barriers get thrown up and we tend to think, oh, I've got to work the situation in order to bring about my happiness or my satisfaction. And in each and every case, by taking matters into our own hands, what we see throughout the text is that there's only more drama and more pain and more heartache. But again, she's in a very vulnerable situation. I'll tell you that as I get older and I get a little bit more mature in my faith, I realize more and more that I don't have to manipulate circumstances. I, I don't have to uh, attempt to force things in my own way. And what I'm learning is that God is always faithful. And what I'm learning is that there is no increase in my faith without trust. And very often, trust is built in the waiting. Let me say that again. Uh, trust is built in the waiting. It was a really difficult lesson to learn, especially for us type A's driven, for those of us that tend to be controllers. So verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Actually, something quite valuable. And at this point, Tamar becomes quite clever. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, some kind of IOU. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet, which is essentially a ring that would have your name on it. And your cord and your staff that is in your hand. This cord will come into play, as you'll see later on in the Old Testament. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So Tamar is all business, and Judah is all horny. <laughs> what are you going to say? I mean, he falls for it. Oh, very well crafted. She now has in her possession his personal property. What he has done is despicable. He's taken a woman who's already in a vulnerable and desperate situation and made her more vulnerable. You know, it's, it's kind of like, can you blame her? Well, yes and no. Now, what's interesting is that, as I said, Tamar, moving forward, is set to be the primary matriarch of the nation of Israel. 
she will bear Judah's child. So we should say that Tamar's story at this point doesn't teach us that we're rewarded for taking matters into our own hands. Once again, what we see is that Tamar's story teaches us God is sovereign even over our own desperation. God is sovereign even over our own desperate acts to try to make things right, but in the wrong way. That's how sovereign God is. So back to her story, verse 20. So when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her, and he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has ever been there. And Judah replied, "Mm, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Judah said, bring her out, and let her be burned. Plot twist about to happen. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. Time to reveal the baby, Daddy. I've told you before, man, if you're old enough to know, there's some Jerry Springer stuff in the Bible. <laughs> right? You got, okay, let's bring the baby daddy out. And you're like. <laughs> By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please, identify whose these are. The signet and the cord and the staff. Let's see, what's it say? Judah. I mean, imagine this, right? She's starting to show. People are like, and the penalty for adultery back in the day was death. And this is Judah's chance to finally get rid of her. Burn her! Um... Before we go there, let me just tell you that the man who violated me owns these things. Have you ever been in that place of absolute humility where you've done something you shouldn't have done and you've been caught? Could that be God's way of saying, You've just been brought low. Now that, now that you're empty of yourself, maybe just now I can begin to fill you with me and my presence. So what's, gonna, what's Judah going to do? Then Judah identified them and said, she's better than I am. She's more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, I lied to her, I defrauded her, in a sense I used her. He did not know her again. She's more righteous than me. He says, I mistreated her. And you know what? She's justified in what she did. 
Judah publicly admits his failure. That's super humbling and super healthy. We live in a culture that promotes victimhood and victimhood always puts the problem out there and never here. And until you recognize the problem is right here, you'll never change. It's gonna be rough for you. It's not that you and I are gonna be perfectly sinless. The question is, how quick are you to repent, to recognize that you've done wrong? Because a quick repentance indicates a healthy heart. We're gonna, we're gonna sin, we're gonna, we're gonna make mistakes. But when confronted, what is your response? So actually in this moment, Judah actually proves to be an example. He did a despicable thing. He owns up to it. This event actually matures him. In a little while, Judah will have the maturity to be the one who graciously intervenes on behalf of his family members when they see their little brother whom they sold out. Judah is the one who will step up, step up and say, guys, we did wrong. So God's grace is all over this text in the coolest ways. Um, you realize that Tamar will take the place of honor in Jesus' genealogy? You don't know how radical this is. So there, there were these 12 guys that lived with Jesus for about three years. And after Jesus was crucified, he came back. That's why Christianity is a thing. Christianity shouldn't be a thing. It shouldn't exist. But something happened that so persuaded those early Christians that Jesus was who he said he was. There is only one thing that makes sense, and that is this. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Because beforehand, they were all cowards huddled together in this upper room. They're like, our leader's gone. What are we going to do? And then Jesus shows up, and he's like, for real. And they're like, game on. Can't deny it. And they all end up essentially dying the death of martyrs, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the reason why Christianity is a thing. That's why, that's why it's here. So these early followers of Jesus were like, we got to write this stuff down, man. we got to write this stuff down. Now, I want to help people understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of hundreds of years worth of prophecy. Where are we going to start? Well, those good God-fearing Jews really understood their Old Testament, and they knew that Jesus was going to come from the line of Abraham through Judah. So Matthew begins his account of the life of Jesus with this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy, which is another way of saying Genesis, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and all of his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And you're like, well, what's the big deal? She's mentioned. You don't understand. Ancient genealogies did not contain the, women, the names of women. They just didn't. It's just how they did it. They just didn't contain the names of women. Secondly, if they did contain the name of a woman on a very rare uh, occasion, it was always a woman that was painted in a positive light. Tamar is surrounded by all of these sort of these, I'm like, these whispers of, uh, of sedition, right? It's, it's these, these whispers of, of prostitution. It's all these whispers 
of scandal. And yet, when they talk about the genealogy of Jesus, bam, there she is. Additionally, she's a Canaanite. And everybody's like, you can't, you can't include her in the genealogy. This, is, this isn't how genealogies were written. You always write genealogies and you include the cream of the crop in your family. You're not talking about that weird uncle that shows up in like Daisy Duke shorts and cowboy boots at the family reunion. You know, you're like, you're writing that guy out of the script. You know what I'm saying? But Tamar's there. Why? I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, it paves the way for Jesus because when Jesus is born, guess what? He's born to an unwed woman. And, and there's all these whispers about Jesus. Well, wait, wait a second. Wasn't he born out of wedlock? Clearly, he couldn't be God's plan to save the world. No way. Actually, if you knew the history of Jesus' ancestors, you'd see that there's this woman, Tamar. In fact, there's actually about five women listed, names of women listed in his genealogy. Every single one of them has some kind of sordid story to tell. And there they are. Why? When Jesus was just like a toddler, his parents present him at the temple. It's all what good God-fearing Jewish parents do. They present their, their child at the, at the temple. There's this dude named Simeon, and he sees him, and he picks Jesus up, and he says, behold, this little boy's going to grow up, and he's going to be a light to the entire world, meaning Jesus would be for all people. How do we know that? Because there's a Canaanite woman in his family lineage. Jesus is for everybody. There's a ridiculous amount of grace through this whole story because you have this dude, Judah, who's, who's a, a, essentially, you know, I mean, the dude by all accounts, he's a pretty, pretty big loser. You have this woman, Tamar, who doesn't fit the nice, clean mold that people would expect being related to Jesus, and there she is. Jesus is for everybody. There's a crazy amount of grace in this chapter. So um, do you see that? You know, do you see that in your own life? I think sometimes in our humanness, we tend to think, man, I'm just too far removed from it. But God is always working through human history. He's always surprising people. He's always doing the unexpected. And, and there's this ridiculous amount of grace upon grace for people who would otherwise be seen as nobodies, absolute nobodies. So there's something here for everybody in the room. I don't know what it is for you. I mean, I've been chewing on it for the last couple of weeks. And I can tell you this. In the final analysis, there's mention of this cord that belongs to Judah. That cord is really interesting. Because as you trace that cord throughout the rest of the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, it's, it is literally this thread that relates the story of Jesus from the past to the present. And that red cord is representative of the red blood that Jesus would shed on the cross. See, if you're a Jewish reader and you're reading this in its context, all of this stuff makes perfect sense. It kind of gets lost on us. But you see the story of Jesus in the story of Judah 
and Tamar. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes, just, just guys, just to free you from any distractions you might have because I know for a fact that the Spirit of God wants to do a work in your life. You might be coming around and you're like, hey, listen, all this stuff's new to me. I'm reading the Bible for the first time. I never knew this stuff was in here. But the Bible talks about real places, real times, and it talks about real people. And that's what makes it so incredibly relevant. So our prayer is simple. Father, we just ask that you would continue to open our minds and our hearts. God, even especially today, you would remind us of the grace that is available for every single one of us. Father, maybe we can relate to Judah in that we've been humbled, but we really haven't learned from it. I I pray that we would learn from Judah, that we would recognize that as even coming from your hand for our blessing and benefit. I pray that we would give into it. I pray that you would help us to see what's on the other side. And that is, as always, your acceptance and your love. Lord, you're always working behind the scenes. I pray for those of us that tend to be impatient, that we would wait because it's in the waiting that our faith is built. We're just appreciative of the good words of this book and how they lead us, ultimately, to the grace of Jesus Christ. All for your glory and for the fame and renown of Jesus. And God's people said, amen.